Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And here we are, we three, perhaps the last island of beauty in the world. So true. (laughs) You can't see us, so you're going to assume that that is correct. We are and, we are having our finest wines, the finest wines known to man. They are here and they are here now for us. Mm, we slaughtered a chicken. We got something to eat. We are talking about the films of 1987 in this season, and we're here at our future cult classic episode. And we're talking about Withnell and I from writer-director Bruce Robinson, which is a major cult classic in general, but especially in the UK sometimes known as Britain's biggest cult movie, according to somebody that I didn't note down who that was, but it was, it was there. Well, Joshua, you were not noting things down. I interviewed film writer, a uh, great film writer, John Tolson, out of, yes, that's right, the United Kingdom. Uh, he's got eight books, including his new book, 40 Cult Movies. And I wanted to know why this has such a hold on... Uh, British culture and why it's so beloved. So we will have that interview a bit later on, John Tolson and me, while Josh looks for names of other people he quoted. Well, I look forward to uh, to hearing that. And I know one of the things uh, when we were preparing for this episode that, Jason, that you were really interested in was getting that perspective from someone from the UK about what is it about this movie specifically over there that has such appeal because we as dumb Americans... Maybe we weren't as into it, it seems. You know, I was just thinking about, like, it's interesting that a cult film takes hold of a country, so to speak. And he was surprised that we even knew about this movie when we were talking to him. I remember when we did our Slapshot episode and we uh, learned about all the money it had made in, like, Quebec and Montreal. And, like, that's what this feels like. It's so specific. Even though Slapshot wasn't a French-Canadian film, this is so specifically beloved by one area in the world, not to say it hasn't uh, grown further than that, especially it's had influences on a lot of major filmmakers. But I think, you know, we have mixed reviews of it. So we needed to get that beloved opinion from someone. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll uh, look forward to hearing from him in a little bit. This film was inspired by Bruce Robinson's own experiences as a young actor in the 1960s. Um, he is represented by the and I character or, uh, Marwood, which is the name of the character in, I, I guess, in the screenplay, they don't ever say it in the film, but it's often referred to that way, even in reviews that I read from the time, um, played by Paul McGann and Withnell, his, uh, even more degenerate friend played by Richard E. Grant was inspired by the real life actor, Vivian McCarroll, who was a friend of Bruce Robinson's back in that time. And this was a debut, uh, film debut for both uh, Paul McGann and Richard E. Grant. And uh, quite a debut it was for them. Yeah, both have gone on to have very successful careers, but this has stuck with both of them in such a way that, um, you know, Richard E. Grant, his his autobiography is called With Nails, right? And it's just like, you know, um, during the pandemic, I think there were a lot of, uh, like we talked about on the Princess Bride episode when, you know, actors were reading this at home. There were a lot of interviews and kind of just um, reoccurrences of this film. 
Right. It is. Uh, and, and weirdly, it's kind of a pandemic lockdown feel because these, these characters are trapped in, in their home or the, the home that they've chosen to live in. And that's because they're, they're poor and they have no resources. But there's a, there's a sort of quarantine feel going on, I think, in a way, way with this film. And uh, these two actors, uh, <clears throat> struggling actors, they take up uh, with Nail's un- uncle, Uncle Monty, who I quoted at the beginning there, to go to his cottage in the country uh, where they spend the weekend and uh, more hijinks ensues, Josh. Yes. Uh, Richard Griffiths, who plays Uncle Monty and uh, is kind of steals the show, even though uh, the, the the main two actors, like you said, it's become this this huge signature thing for them. Even then, I think Richard Griffiths kind of steals the show from them when he shows up. I, I would agree. I mean, you know, you you want to like he's the actor that you want to, you know, we know him from the Harry Potter films. But this made me want to like see him in more things. Yeah. So this movie was, it's hard to say whether it was a success exactly. It seems to have grossed about $1.7 million on its budget, about $1.6 million. So that doesn't sound very good. Um, but that's just in the UK. And that's adjusting one of those figures that was in dollars and one of those figures that was in pounds. So it may have uh, made its money back. <laughs> in the in the worldwide box office i don't know it did at least get released here in the u.s in theaters it isn't one of these things sometimes these cult movies or foreign films we look at didn't ever trickle out into u.s theaters until many years later or not at all until they hit home video or something but this did get a release in 87 in theaters in the u.s and uh when it did it was uh had sort of a mixed response from critics Siskel gave it a thumbs down while Ebert gave it a thumbs up. And Siskel, of course, uh, compared the central relationship in the film to the relationship between Siskel and Ebert. I think that's a good comparison on that one, don't you? (laughs) Yeah, it was it was amusing because uh, Ebert is praising the film and he's saying how he thought it was it was interesting that he felt like the, the actors really captured this genuine relationship of these two people who feel like. They've they've known each other for years and years, and all of that time has been miserable. And Siskel is like, does that remind you of something? <laughs> so, except I think they would both be the and I character, Siskel and Ebert, and I and I. Yeah, yeah, they're uh, n- they're not quite as uh, degenerate as as Withnell, but uh, yeah, it is it is amusing to to hear them talk about it like that. So Ebert, you know, he was the one who liked it, and um, he actually had it in his. Uh, extended top twenty, I think, for the year. Somewhere yeah, four star, re- four star review from that guy. Yes, Mister Ebert. So, also, uh, Vincent Canby in the New York Times, he said, "With Null and I, the bracing new English comedy written by Bruce Robinson and his first film as a director, may also be the first film to contemplate the bilious aftermath of that brief, highly publicized, illusory era." Withnil and I is not the whole story of the 60s. It's a small, wise, breezy footnote. Mr. Robinson has the good sense to keep Withnil and I in short focus and specific in character and incident. Though Withnil and Marwood are always aware of the nature of the times they inhabit, the period details never become set decoration. Withnil and I isn't social history. It's about growing up almost as if by accident. It's also genuinely funny especially Mr. Robinson's dialogue, though the accents of the actors occasionally make individual words unintelligible to the American Mm. ear. 
that's tough in the 80s, not knowing British accents, speaking the same language. Well, I mean, I they they use some slang that people might not have been familiar with, or you might not catch every word. I feel like that's fair. They're not watching this with uh, with captions like modern people watch every that, movie uh, and TV show. Do you guys do that? I totally do that. Oh hell yeah! Yeah, I I don't. I I I find it too distracting, but uh, like visually. But I understand the the purpose, and it's certainly something that that many people do now. I know my mom watches lots of British TV and she always does it. And she's definitely not Gen Z. So I know, Dave, I hooked Josh's mom on Line of Duty and she is forever grateful to me for that. <laughs> she <laughs> is. She's watched like dozens of other British crime shows since then. She's lapped you multiple times on the British crime show. I mean, it's going to be, uh, you know, one of those students or passes the teacher. I'm going to have to go back to her for new recommendations. Oh, she has them. Believe me. <laughs> yeah, Josh, I think two points of specificity here. The first time I watched this, I don't necessarily think I took into account that this is 1969 and you have all those lines like the one I quoted from Uncle Monty and um, how this is like the end of the greatest decade. And I think that kind of uh, longing and wistfulness really plays into this. So that was one point I wanted to make. I wanted to go back to what you were saying about how much Ebert loved this. I got a quote from him. He called Grant's performance a tour de force. And Withnail is one of the iconic figures in modern films. Yeah, he added it to his great movies series that he uh, would write about, you know, sort of a, his own canon that he would periodically write articles on. And he did that in like 2009 or something like that. So it's, it's clearly something that stuck with him. I think that does happen. And we will talk more about that going on. It is a movie that you kind of juggle around your brain for a while. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but what you're saying about the 60s it comes up a lot in these in these reviews, which I thought was interesting. And, um, you know, this is 1987. And already the 60s have been sort of canonized as this this period of time that's that's like mythical, even though it's, you know, relatively recent compared to, to then versus now. And so I thought it was interesting that people saw it that way. And I saw I think maybe it was on Letterboxd somebody comparing this to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is another story about the end of the 60s and these two degenerate drug-addicted characters who are looking back on it. And I definitely got a lot of that out of this as well. Yeah, so just to just to specify here, uh, and I, is, Marlo is not really a drug addict. It's uh, with, with Nail is quite the uh, purveyor of everything, though. Right. You could say that Marwood is uh, an alcoholic, though. They're both definitely alcoholics. Oh, yeah. There's a whole drinking game. Did you know that, Josh, with this? It sounds I mean, I didn't, but I, I'm not surprised. It's uh, every time with Nail has a drink, you have to drink, which means over the course of the film, you'll drink nine and a half glasses of red wine, one half imperial pint of cider, one shot of lighter fluid, uh, or you could use vinegar, which is what they used in the scene as a substitute. Two and a half measures of gin, six glasses of sherry, 13 drams of scotch whiskey, and a half pint of ale. So you'll be uh, knackered Dead. and lathered. Dead, and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you will definitely not finish watching the movie. <laughs> you, maybe after the lighter fluid, you could throw a match down your throat and see what happens. So. Yeah, it sounds, uh, sounds fun. So um, Joel Siegel in the Chicago Reader, uh, also kind of mixed. He said, it's a pleasant enough picture, 
a mixture of humor and drama effectively performed by a cast of unfamiliar players and shot with an appropriately dark, moody palette. But Robinson's screenplay is shallow. He is content to stick to surfaces and never strains himself to prove the possibilities of his material. Withnell and I is more than passably diverting and surely preferable to mindless Hollywood summer movies, but it left me hungry to know much more about its characters and their era than the writer-director seemed interested in providing. Only Griffiths, with his blue eyeshadow and pig-like snout, his ludicrous pretensions and touching generosity, manages, through the actor's art, to endow Robinson's skeletal screenplay with texture and depth. Well, Josh, I think that's a little unfair because obviously Joel Siegel uh, would be a big fan of Uncle Monty's hair and mustache because it's similar to his in the 80s. So, yeah, I was surprised. Joel Siegel wrote this extremely long, like detailed, thoughtful review. And we think of him as one of these glib TV guys. But I think, you know, at a time he was uh, like, you know, much like Ebert. He had a lot of, uh, you know complex thoughts about films. I think that the point, and I brought this up with uh, John in our interview is, and we kind of talked about it is, uh, were these two friends, were they forced to be friends based on the economic circumstances? You know, they're both struggling actors and they just got a place together, something you do in your 20s, right? And um, I think, you know, it's fair to ask, like, what is the basis of this relationship? And um, you see at the end how heartbroken Withnail is when Marwood leaves. So there is some affinity there, but is it back and forth? Who knows? Right. I mean, there is the, there's, you know, friendships are like that where you're kind of thrown together by circumstances. And sometimes that means you form that genuine bond because of those circumstances. You're both struggling and that really uh, connects you to each other. And sometimes it's just like, oh, God, I'm stuck with this fucking guy for how long? And I think it's right to wonder. It's not clear necessarily which one that is here. And that's maybe part of what's interesting about this movie. And maybe it's a little mix of both that like sometimes they really care about each other and are happy with each other's company. And sometimes they're just like, why can't we get away from each other? There's a, you know, uh, when Marwood gets this big role, this is why he leaves at the end, um, you know. Withnell congratulates him, but you could sense there's that kind of envy or jealousy or why wasn't it me? And uh, I had a, I had a moment like that in my in my twenties. I was dating an actress, and we both went out for the same show, and I got it, and she congratulated me, but I could tell she was not really thrilled <laughs> congratulating me, you know, because she didn't get it at the time. But um, it, it's it's hard. I mean, you know, it's a hard life to live as an actor because you're always needing someone else's validation for your own self-worth, I'd say. Right. I mean, I think that's a, a common thing for any kind of creative pursuit where even if you are genuinely happy for someone else's success, I mean, and hey, it doesn't even have to be a creative pursuit. It could be just getting a promotion at work or whatever. If you're in competition or if you're both trying to aim for a similar goal to be happy for your friend's success, but also feel a bit resentful, even if you don't want to, you know, I mean, Withnell seems like the kind of guy that is not going to really uh, be self-critical 
about anything, any resentment or whatever. But even someone who is in realizing like, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't resent this person. I shouldn't be jealous. I should be happy. This is a person I care about. It, you know, sometimes you just feel that anyway. There's a podcast. This, like we said, this kind of movie has taken a hold of uh, British pop culture. There's a Whitnail and I podcast. It's about 12 episodes long. I listened to the first few and they kind of talk about the idea that uh, Withnail and Uncle Monty both come from like this upper crust world. So they they're set no matter what, you know, they have all this money so they can look back and say, I never got to play the Dane and I should have, and they can still live in nice places and have a good life. Whereas, and I has to go out and, and work for a living. Right. I mean, and there's the whole thing where he keeps saying to Withnell, like, well, just call your father. You know, obviously Withnell comes from money and he's sort of like cosplaying the poor struggling actor in a way because he could at any moment just decide to not be that anymore and go back to living in comfort with his family. Yeah. And I know we're getting a lot into this in our uh, intro segment here, but at the end, uh, after and I leaves, uh, Withnail finally gives that speech from Hamlet. And I think that's one of the things that like really showcased uh, all these dimensions of Grant because you see him as a degenerate and you see him as kind of eccentric. And then here he goes and puts on like this great monologue and you're like, oh, he does have talent. He could really go for it. He could really be something. But you actually have to take those risks then. Right, right. And he doesn't really take it seriously. He's more interested in drinking and taking drugs. So uh, finally, critic wise, I did also want to get a, a UK perspective. So this is Hillary Mantle in with the, the accent, please. <laughs> that is not happening. <laughs> no one wants to hear that. Uh, Hillary Mantle in the Spectator said, "An especially self-conscious, self-regarding generation is now in middle age, endlessly speculating on the precise psychic turning point when cannabis gave way to coronary and the demo to the directorship." When exactly did we begin to wish our futures to be as they are? How did we get here from there? Bruce Robinson's semi-autobiographical film is a dry, slight, small-scale comedy about one of these turning points. That is all there is to the plot, but nothing more is needed. Every line is sharp, and the whole film finely judged and well-paced. The performances are quite out of the ordinary, Paul McGann's in particular. And while the film is original and personal, there is something in it that most people will recognize, however far they have been from thespian leanings, dire poverty, and Camden Town. Hmm. Well, I've uh, I've had two of those three. I haven't been to Camden Town, but the other two, I've I've got pretty well unlocked <laughs> throughout right, my right. life. It is interesting in regards to the '60s being, like you said, such an iconic and distinct decade, and then just how quickly that changed. And then by the time this movie came out in 87, I don't think there are really any remnants of what that life was like. Right. I mean, it is, again, it's interesting to me that that just at this point, people have like mythologized it so much. I mean, it was 18 years earlier. That's like us saying, oh man, 2005 was the golden age. And I feel like that's not something anyone is saying. Um, so yeah. And also the fact that even in the movie, and I don't know if this is something that they you know, Bruce Robinson actually experienced or just put it in in retrospect. But the characters in the movie in 1969 are talking about how, oh, this the greatest decade of all is right. about to end. Yeah, that's what I was uh, alluding to earlier, where they just kind of know that it's all over. And, right. and you're right, like 
would someone know that in 1969 in the summer of love and everything like that would stock all this? Or is this just kind of someone looking back and writing it into the present tense? Right. That's kind of how I see it. I mean, it's one thing to say even by 1987, they had that sense, but to to feel like they had that sense at the time, I, I don't know if there's really that level of awareness. I mean, I would imagine that if you think that what's going on at that moment is fantastic, that there's not some magical thing that's going to happen in 1970 that's going to kill it all. You expect it to be able to continue to go forward. I think even Uncle, if it doesn't. Right. Uncle Monty comes from a different perspective because he's older and has lived a longer life. So his looking back isn't just through that decade, but kind of a whole time that's passing him by. Right, right. And I think he's meant to be from sort of that older generation, whereas uh, Danny, the drug dealer, who is the one who really kind of reminisces a lot about the 60s played by Ralph Brown. I mean, he's very like he's a kind of a stereotypical hippie looking kind of guy. And he spends most of the movie smoking pot. I mean, he's exactly what you think of when you think of the 60s. Right. He would be the equivalent to someone like the guy on the couch and half baked. Right. You know, um, but with that, Ralph Brown came into that uh, audition dressed like that and kind of fully in character. And that's how he got the role. And he is perfect for it. Uh, we did talk about Wayne's World, where he basically plays. I think, you know, this character, they Mike Myers just said, you know, play uh, play Danny, the drug dealer as our kind of roadie in uh, Wayne's World, too. Right, exactly. And I, of course, I saw that way before this. Um, but I had seen this before, Jason. Had you seen this before? Yeah, I watched it. I don't know if it was like a year ago or over the pandemic, but I had heard um, a writer talk about it on the Indie Film Hustle podcast. And it was just like, all I heard was like Richard E. Grant and another, uh, you know, I didn't know who Paul McGann was, but, you know, and another actor they're playing struggling actors who need a break from the city life and go to the countryside and that's the whole movie and i'm like well that sounds perfect to me because i like those subject matters and i like as we've talked about on the show the walk the walk and talk i don't need a lot of plot i'm interested in the character studies and the dialogue i love movies like that so uh that was the first time i watched it and i liked it better this time yeah i watched it uh, not quite as recently as that the first time, but I, I mean, you, you mentioned how John Tolson is asking how we've heard of this, but I feel like it's a pretty well-established cult movie and I don't know specifically where I heard about it, but certainly it was a known, no, oh, this is a cult movie. This is something that people love. And I want, wanted to watch it, rented it from Netflix or something. And I really did not care for it the first time. And I think I liked it a little more this time because I had a better idea of what to expect because the fact is that Woodnall and Marwood are really unpleasant people. And I think that's on purpose, but I expected something maybe a little more, uh, I, I don't know, a little less abrasive maybe the first time. And I knew more coming in this time, but I still don't particularly care for the movie in part just because I don't like spending time with these guys. So that was my main thing watching it uh, again this time. Which is interesting because as you, as we keep saying, it's so beloved in uh, England and people just quote it all the time and watch it all the time. So they love spending time with these people. Right. And I think they find these characters charming despite, or maybe even because of all their flaws. And I just didn't find any charm to them. So Dave, had you seen this before? No, I hadn't seen it. I hadn't even heard of it until you uh, guys put it on this list. So yeah. I was glad to check it out. This is what I'm saying. I think Josh, you think it's more uh, well known than it is because you know, 
you sit you sit up at night and read lists of movies to yourself and memorize them. But you know, I don't think it I didn't know I about guarantee it. you Dave also does that. <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know about it until I heard about it on that podcast. Dave never heard about it until we told him. So I don't think it's as well known as a lot of cult movies that we've covered on the show. Yeah, maybe not. But I mean the definition of a cult movie is that it has a small but devoted following. And I think, you know, maybe we've talked about certain cult movies that have their cults have grown really, really big. And this one, not as much, but the people who are devoted to it, as you say, are are very devoted. Yes. Big cults across the pond. Indeed. So uh, anything else you want to say about the background of this film, Jason? Uh, Bruce Robinson said at the first test screening, uh, nobody laughed and he thought it was a disaster. And then he found out the audience was full of German travelers staying at a hostel and none of them understood <laughs> any of the words. <laughs> well, that's a good reason, I suppose. We'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on With Nell and I. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we're talking about our future cult classic pick, With Nell and I. And uh, in a little bit, we'll have Jason's interview with author John Tolson, who is, I think, more a part of the cult for this film than we are, it sounds like. He loves this movie. He says he and his friends just text lines back and forth sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's that's a thing with cult movies, you know, just the, the quoting of them. And, and even though I didn't enjoy this, really, and I didn't particularly find it funny, there are certainly lines that you can tell are cleverly written and sound like the kind of thing that people would quote to each other. I can't think of any of them right now, but in the <laughs> moment, I mean, they didn't, you know, they didn't have that resonance with me. So I'm not remembering them necessarily. But in the moment, I think you can say, oh, yeah, this this there's one when they're in the the pub in the, um, you know, the country town that they go to and they're miserable there and they keep trying to get people to give them like dead animals to cook. I don't know why they don't just go to the grocery store. There is a town. But anyway, they're in the pub and there's a poacher, this guy who is, you know, illegally killing local wildlife and he's got it all like in his coat. And they're trying to get him to give them an eel and he won't do it. And he, you know, is sort of like poking at them with it. And, and, and Withnall says, don't threaten me with a dead fish or something like that. And I feel like that's a kind of a line that people would quote. Thank you, Josh, for kind of getting that for us. Yeah. I mean, right. Is there, are there not like quotable uh, I think, lines? I think so. I mean, I think all those characters that we've already talked about are, you know, between Withnail, Uncle Monty, and uh, Danny the drug dealer, those are the big three quotable characters there. Right. Yeah. I mean, and those are almost all of the supporting characters, really. <laughs> and Marwood is kind of the straight man to those people, so to speak. Yeah, and he has to, he has to be right. Right. You need that because the characters are so larger than life. All three of those people. I mean, and Marwood himself is not exactly like subdued or anything like that. I mean, only compared to those other people, but he is is also sort of melodramatic and and ridiculous in his own way literally you could like do a spin-off and like uh you know a crossover with some show like in therapy and have each one of these characters in therapy because they're all <laughs> uh eccentric's a nice word but there there are a lot of bubbling issues for each of them 
Yeah, I feel like this is, I mean, maybe it never reached the right level of popularity, but this is the kind of thing that you could have seen made into like a terrible sitcom spinoff with just the weekly adventures of Widnell and Marwood as they try to become uh, successful actors and live in squalor. I'm surprised that that hasn't happened. I do know that they're working on a stage play right now of it, so that's going to be a cool thing coming up. It actually premiered October 2023 at the time. Well, not premiered, but it was announced just a few weeks ago at the Birmingham Repertory Theater. It will start on May 3rd, 2024. And uh, Robinson is uh, adapting it and it will be directed by Sean Foley. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to to do, I mean, something like that because this is a movie with limited locations. Yeah. Yeah, and it's mainly just about the characters talking to each other. So I think it would fit as a stage play. I like I said, I think that a sitcom version would not work, but you can imagine someone thinking that it would work. Uh yes, uh money grabs, right? Right. Or just the structure of it, right? I mean, that general idea of, you know, two struggling actors who are living together and they're friends or maybe they're stuck living together as we said, it's not entirely clear which one and maybe it's both. And, uh, you know, each week they have new ridiculous scenarios to try to get themselves money and get parts and whatever and the crazy characters in their orbit. And Danny, the drug dealer is like Kramer and he just shows up every now and then and people cheer. Joey was a uh, actor on Friends. So there you go. Wasn't that the plot of Bosom Buddies? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Something like that. Uh, Josh, did you have a favorite character? I mean, Danny, the drug dealer, I think is, is my favorite character. He's amusing. And I mean, in part because he's only in it a little bit, you know, he's basically makes two appearances and Ralph Brown really creates such a distinctive character in the, those brief moments. And he's more straight up, just silly and comedic. Whereas a lot of the other humor is tinged with this kind of pathos. And especially as we get toward the end, as you were talking about earlier, it's actually quite sad you know, where kind of w- where Widnell ends up and the whether they're really friends or not, they're clearly kind of going their separate ways there. But Danny is just is just fun. Well, thanks for that, Josh. Our work <laughs> is a good character, too. <laughs> it's not a bad impression of him there. That was good. He said that he met a hairdresser on a different set who spoke like this. And that's how this character came to life. Yeah, I was. I feel like I've only ever seen him in this and Wayne's World too, and therefore I don't know how he actually talks. John told us he's a totally different actor. A lot of serious, you know, kind of cop stuff, uh, you know, which, as we know, beloved in England. Right. I do. I do really think Richard Griffiths gives a, a, a great performance here and um, uh, a well-defined character. And obviously, um, he is. He's out, but he's closeted, right? He's, you know, it's clear that he's gay, but, you know, this is the 60s in Britain. um, So being a homosexual was a crime not too long before this, right? So there's a lot of complexities, uh, some stuff that, you know, is definitely problematic today. Uh, He's aggressive and trying to have his way with uh, Marwood. But I do think at least there's a basis for his actions and how he acts and why he does what he does. And he's a, he's a really, really good actor. He is a good actor. Absolutely. Ebert said in the, in their segment that, that he thought this was an uh, Oscar nomination worthy performance from Richard Griffiths. Um, And, and I agree that he's good. I do think 
that that whole sequence that goes on forever of him trying to sort of like you said, have his way with Marwood. I mean, he probably sees it as like seducing, but it really comes off as like he's a sexual predator is just is just painful to watch. And it is certainly problematic now. And it's meant to be funny. It's meant to be farcical. And I realize it's predicated on this sort of misunderstanding where the idea is that Withnall tells Monty and Marwood doesn't know this, that Marwood is is gay. And that's the way that he kind of gets them this cottage. And so that's why Monty, Monty isn't just like trying to, you know, sexually assault some straight guy. He thinks that this is someone who's into him, but the way it's presented is, is, I mean, it's very uncomfortable and not in like a funny way. I think again, you watch a lot of movies from this time period, right. And they play it off for comedy, you know, and maybe that is how it was dealt with back then, but it does not age well. I completely agree with you on that. Right, right. I mean, and certainly there's movies from this time period that present this in a much more insensitive way. So, I mean, if we're looking at the spectrum, this isn't the worst, but I mean, I feel like that's the best we can say. And it's it's often presented in a comical um, kind of like, whoopsie whoopsie type way right right, exactly exactly um which you know that's a uh, i mean like uh like i love don rickles right i love don rickles don rickles couldn't be don rickles today right it's a different time and a different you know everything changes and evolves and we always try to place it in the time period when it came out but also i think it's fair to look back and say like this doesn't work the way it worked when it when it first uh, presented itself right i mean i think of a movie that that was your pick uh in a previous season peter's friends that is i mean it's it's later than this but i feel like it's in this similar like british acting milieu and uh definitely not at a time that was as progressive and that movie as we talked about i think on our episode presents the the sexuality of the peter character in a much more nuanced, sensitive way. And I feel like he and Monty actually have a lot in common. Mm, Right. They both have that kind of upper crust life and maybe they miss their opportunities to do something more, which could be for any number of reasons. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's such a tinge of sadness to all these characters. Uh, The main three, I would say, which, which does ground the piece as not just kind of this hyper kind of eccentric piece uh and i think that realism like i brought up that big scene at the end after marwood is left and with nail gives his monologue uh to nobody right just to the animals out there and it's um you know that's like the accomplishment he can do it he knows he can do it but will anyone ever uh, when will anyone else ever know that he can do it right right i mean and and probably not i think is what we're led to believe and and at least in part because he himself is you know he's self-sabotaging or whatever he's not going to achieve anything because he's not truly dedicated to actually making it happen despite him making a big show of calling his agent and whatever and we even see in the movie right he calls his agent at one point and he's offered like an understudy part or something in this in the seagull constantine yeah. And, and he's so resentful of that, that he turns it down and you can see him having this inflated sense of himself that anything less than the lead role in a major production, he wouldn't take. And that's, 
holding him back from ever succeeding. Right. That's such a, that's such an ego thing, right? You know, like I, uh, I, I'm this person, I, I, you know, and it goes through your head as an actor, whenever you get cast in anything, why don't I have this part? Or why does this guy have this part? And, or why does this person get this? And it, you gotta, you gotta fight through that and just make the most of what you got there. Right. Indeed. Indeed you do. But, um, I think for me, the, 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 the emotion of it, the tinge of sadness or whatever, it, it, it didn't, I don't know. It didn't help. I guess I, I still, I found these guys so insufferable that I didn't feel sorry for them during that period or, or feel like I had any empathy for, for their situation or whatever. Um, I just kind of was like, yeah, well, suck it up, shut up. And, uh, Let's move on. Is well, kind of how I felt about them. It's a strange, strangely structured movie, so I can see how it's hard to get into because you're starting with Marwood and this voiceover about how Withnail is just insufferable, and then most of it takes place in and around their apartment in London. Which I thought the apartment, the design and the set of the apartment looked great. Like it looked incredibly lived in and terrible. Right. Yeah. You yeah. Know? You can almost like smell that apartment. <laughs> how often smell. Yeah. So they're just so depressed that they decide they need to go to the country and they stop off. And that's when we first meet Uncle Monty. And and um, and then after that, it's it's road trip. It's buddy buddy. And they're just in the country with very little to do. And then Uncle Monty comes back. And that's basically the whole movie. Right. But there are some interesting things like Uncle Monty. um is so obsessed with like, I don't want to say putting on airs, but like the image of who he is, right? When he goes into town, he's, and he takes them, he's, oh, this is so embarrassing. I look at you two. How will I ever explain this to the locals, right? And it's like, well, who cares, right? But um, so the structure just kind of meanders. And then um, at the end, we know that uh, and I gets the role. And that kind of leads us to the end of the, the tale of the two. I thought some of the strengths besides the dialogue and we talked about the realism were the, I love the settings. I love stuff like that. And I, you know, George Harrison was an exec producer on this and you're getting great music that I don't think you would have otherwise gotten, whether it's my, uh, while my guitar gently weeps or the two Hendrix songs, including, uh, which were all, all along the watchtower and also, uh, voodoo child. Yeah. Right. Those so, are great. I love, I do love those Hendrix songs. That was my favorite part of the movie. Yeah. Well, Hey man, but uh, I mean, I had read that this was the movie where they said that, um, the Hendrix family said, okay, we're going to start taking control of our rights again as, uh, <laughs> they saw this and they were horrified or maybe they just said, this is too much. But I, even at the beginning, there's a, uh, they play a wider shade of pale, but they play like a live version. And I love that because Movies never play live versions of music, and I think it adds to like a realism, and it's kind of crackling from that. So that was something I took note of. So, Dave, did you have any thoughts on that? Was someone drinking coffee out of a bowl with a spoon early in the movie? I, I guess yes. he didn't take notice yeah. of it. So. Yeah, Marwood does do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I the music was uh, great though, Jason. You're right. Lots of great music in there, and. Uh, I don't know. The whole thing kind of reminded me of like a British version of Swingers, or I guess it would be the other way around. Swingers is uh, inspired by this, but um, just, you know, the whole thing of actors and like their life, their competitive life, as well as friendships that are like kind of stuck together, um, which is a lot of the stuff you guys have already been talking about. So I noted down and I just took this off of uh, the interweb. So don't 
don't credit me for actually doing some thought work here, Josh. Uh, the nice guys, the end of the tour, awful nice. Jeff, who lives at home, the Overbrook brothers, Pineapple Express, Sideways, and Box of Moonlight took direct influence from this film. Yeah, I mean, I would say the ones of those that I've heard of and seen, I think I like all of them more than this. Maybe not Pineapple <laughs> Express, but um, yeah, I mean, I think there's this fine line and between when you have characters like this, between them being amusing and endearing in their like awfulness and just being unpleasant and you want to get away from them. And, and that's often just a really personal response. And to me, these guys are just so off-putting that it's hard for me to get through the film. But I mean, I agree with you, Jason, definitely on the setting, not only in the apartment, but then when they get to the cottage and the whole idea that they're like, oh, we're going to get away to the country and they get to the cottage and it's like, oh, wait, this is also a shithole. Like we've just gone from one shithole to a different kind of shithole that has no electricity and there's no food. And, um, you know, it, it did feel very real and very lived in. Um, so I appreciated that even though, again, it was like, okay, I, I feel like this is a real place that I don't want to be. And I'd like to get away from it's a, they're, I would say less of a shithole in the country and more of them just being ill-equipped for that life. Well, that too, but I mean, it still just seems kind of like dirty. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of fun scenes like you had mentioned when they go into that tea house and you know, there's the scene where they go to the pub and there's the old general and they kind of play off that they were military men also. And um, it's just their lives as actors um, totally intersects with their lives as people, right? Like there's no separation between the two. And that can be uh, frustrating, confusing and exhausting at times. You would know. (laughs) 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 So, uh, should should we rate this out of five uh, five bowls of coffee? <laughs> I was gonna say it has to be some type of drink, you know, five shots of lighter fluid or something. Sure, five shots of lighter fluid. How would you rate this? I gave it three this time. The first time I watched it was two and a half. It's growing on me. So you know, a few more watches and it'll be my favorite movie ever. All right, well, go. that's maybe that's sometimes what happens with cult movies. I feel like it's just something is compelling about them. People come back to them I, over and over again. I mean, I will. I got to say, before you do this, like you know, I, I, I've been thinking about this movie a lot since we watched it, and that's always a good sign when it like sticks with you. And like, I would totally watch this movie again. Yeah, I hope not to watch this again. I I will say I slightly liked it more, but I I gave it uh, two out of five according to Letterbox the first time I watched it, and I'm sticking with two shots of lighter fluid out of five, but maybe it'd be like two and a quarter this time or something, a slight, slight improvement. Sorry, Josh, but after that, you're not getting a presuming Ed doll for Christmas. What? Don't you remember? They have that whole bit with uh, your favorite character where they're going to make the doll because the baby doll pees itself. So they created a doll that can shit itself and everything. Right. I didn't remember that that was the name of the doll, but yes, he, he's quite the inventor. He also creates the little uh, thing that Widnell tries to use to, to cheat the, uh, the urine test when he's getting arrested for drunk driving and it, it doesn't work. It needs some refining. So uh, Dave, how would you rate this? Uh, I'm going with two and a half. And I think we should have done it out of those carrot blunts. Uh, oh yeah, the Camberwell no. carrot or whatever that, uh, yeah. that Danny rolls Those with the great. character presuming it right there. Yes, the bongo player. Ah, that's <laughs> what it is. Yeah, that's the guy. I didn't. I. I don't think the doll, the shitting itself doll, had a name. But I think it did. But who knows? We'll yeah. we'll, we'll all watch it again and get back to you. I look yes. forward to that. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, well, we'll come back in a moment and check out uh, Jason's interview with John Tolson. All right, we are back on Awesome Movie Year here with John Tolson. I'm super excited. Uh, noted writer, expert on cult films. Uh, John, how many books do you have out right now? Uh, did the bell sound? Uh, I heard a bell. Was, <laughs> was, was, yeah. was that the, the, the million dollar question that you asked? I've got, I've got, <laughs> that was <laughs> yeah. That was that was the prompt for you to. Once I finish my question, we ring a bell to let you know that you have every to time. So. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've got eight books out. I had to count actually. That's why. I, that's why I paused. So how many I've got out? Eight. Yeah, this is forty cult movies. Is my eighth book. Forty cult movies uh, just came out uh, this month, October in two thousand twenty-three, and um, I heard you on Dave's podcast piecing it together, talking about certain cult movies, and you're British. Where, where in England are you located? In East Riding of Yorkshire, not far from Whitby. All right. Uh, that doesn't help me at all, but that's my, <laughs> okay. uh, Scar- my lack of... You yeah. probably heard of Scarborough, though. You must have heard of Scarborough. Yeah, yeah. No, I've heard of the... I just... Uh, the the geography's not working out for me. But anyway, we're not here to talk about geography. We're here to talk about, is this the most beloved British cult film ever made with Nail and I? John, tell us about the first time, how you came to this film. Was it in the theaters? Uh, Tell me about it, John. Well, I think it is one of the most beloved. And yeah, I first saw it when it first came out in 1987. And uh, I saw it in the movie house, um, just outside of Nottingham, which is, well, I'm not even going to go into the geography. I don't want to confuse you anymore. I'm going to put a map up and just put pins <laughs> in all the places. And um, I was the only one in there. I was the only one in the movie house. I think I went to see it in the afternoon. Uh, I was unemployed at the time, which is probably why I went to see it in the afternoon. So I related to the characters on screen uh, and, you know, didn't know very much about the movie. Uh, it was a good movie. I thought it was funny. Uh, and uh, I, I didn't have any idea it was going to be a cult classic but somehow over the years it just kind of filtered into the culture in this country and as i was saying before we started recording um you just get people who are such fans that they kind of build whole relationships with each other based on uh, scenes and dialogue from with nail and i uh, and for some reason, you just kind of remember the the dialogue, uh, and it's really strange. I don't know if you guys have experienced this before, but it st- really sticks in your mind uh, the dialogue in that movie. Uh, and I've had, as I said, I have friends uh, who really love the film just as I do, and is part of the sort of bonding ritual between us that we all kind of quote lines from the film to each other. Sometimes we. To send texts to each other to try and catch each other out and you know i i got a text through a couple of years ago it just said are you the farmer that was the text <laughs> what the hell is this you know i had no idea what it was and of course it's one of the more obscure lines from the film so uh i think the the thing is with is you're just trying to outdo each other with the more obscure lines possible from the movie that's always the most fun with uh, movies that are beloved. Like who can come up with the deepest cut to reference to the other person? 
one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because, you know, we're here in Las Vegas and there's just like, I like the movie, but I don't think we can possibly properly uh, explain what this movie means to British culture and why it has become so beloved, especially over there in Great Britain. Can you explain that to us? Well, it's a little bit of a mystery to me as well, but I can hazard a couple of guesses. I think, first of all, there's the kind of the general approach of the movie, which is it's kind of an odd couple movie. You know, an odd couple movies really do seem to gain cult, cult status and become very beloved. Uh, you, you kind of asked me before we started recording if I could talk about another movie from that, that kind of same era. Uh, and I would, would we, uh, we can talk about that later, but I would say, you know, Midnight Run is, is another movie that kind of reminds me a little bit. Because it's the same thing. It's kind of an odd couple movie. So I think there's this, that sort of universality about it. But on the other hand, there's something about the theme of With Nail and I that really kind of resonates in this country because it's set in 1969. Uh, and it's kind of like it's uh, at the end of the swinging 60s in London, uh, a really sort of uh, popular era that really caught people's imaginations of the time. And kind of looking back on that, it seems to be very much about the end of an era. The, the whole movie is kind of like the end of an era, the end of a friendship. Um, and it's kind of biographical as well. And there's a wonderful uh, speech in there by Danny, the drug dealer, where he talks about coming to, the, coming to the end of the era and saying, you know, the 60s is over. And man, we failed to paint it black. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's kind of got an underlying sadness to it as well, uh, which I think British audiences kind of relate to. Yeah, that is definitely like a current running through it. You know, Uncle Monty gives a speech in the middle talking about, you know, how they're the last, uh, I, had, I had the quote written down, but, uh, you know, the, the last three elements of goodness in the world or whatever it is. And it just feels like everyone is losing something yeah. until, and I gets a part of the, at the end there, right? Yeah, and it's a kind of bittersweet moment, isn't it? Because it's kind of the end of that period of, of, in their lives and probably the end of the kind of period in Bruce Robinson's life where, you know, he, he came off from being unemployed and they, they were no long, longer bumming around together, but the friendship had to end because I was going places and poor old Withnail was going nowhere. Is it a friendship or is it one of these, you know, we're two creative types, we're in the same place, neither of us have any money, let's move in together. Type I think it is. It's kind of like a couple of slackers together, but they're like an old married couple as well, aren't they? They're kind of constantly bickering and, uh, you know, um, sort of playing each other off each other. And maybe there's a kind of a bit of a sort of homosocial subtext there as well. <laughs> you know, just how deep is their relationship? How deep is their friendship? Um, there they, right. they don't seem to be any women in their lives <laughs> at all. They've, only, they've really only got each other, you know? Uh, and so when they have to, when it comes to them parting at the end, it's quite a poignant scene, isn't it? When, when Withnell's just kind of left on his own and he's a failed actor, but. He's never really had a chance to show what he can do on the stage. Yeah, that that scene where he does the monologue from Hamlet there at the end, I think is really poignant and like 
shows you just that this guy is not a BSer, that he's got he's got the chops. He just doesn't know how to move forward with them. Yeah, I think Bruce Robinson, who wrote the script and directed the film, I think he drew on a lot of autobiographical elements in the, in the in the story, and he I think he was more or less the eye character. Right. And Withnail was based on a friend of his, so I think there's a kind of sort of slightly elegiac aspect to it, almost a kind of a a, a remembrance of a friendship uh, and the sort of sadness of the loss of that friendship, and that kind of comes out in the film as well. Do you think, I mean, Bruce Robinson made some other things but never really captured this acclaim again. Is that is that a surprise? Do, did you think he had another one in him or, or what happened with this? Well, I think he made a couple of good films afterwards. He made How to Get Ahead in Advertising, right. which had Richard E. Grant in it. It was a sort of satire, um, much more kind of pointed satire than uh, with Nail. It didn't really uh, click with audiences. And then he made a really good thriller called Jennifer Eight, which came out in 1992. Um, and, uh, and he he wrote a lot of scripts. I mean, he was very, uh, as well as being in, starting out as an actor, working for Zeffirelli and so on, he uh, had a, a strong career as a scriptwriter. I think he wrote The Killing Fields for Roland Joffe in the sort of early 80s uh, and did a lot of script writing in Hollywood, I think, script doctoring work. So he was very respected within the industry, but less, uh, less known really. As a as a director, uh, after after those three films, with Richard E. Grant, this was his screen debut. So I mean, he comes like he's shot out of a cannon in this thing. That must have been the excitement of discovering someone so talented who's new. Uh, you sat and watched it alone in the movie theater. That must have been a pretty big thrill. And I think this was McGann's uh, debut as well. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this earlier. The the the, the one thing, the, the revelation really was Richard E. Grant because I'd never heard of, heard of him before that. I'd never seen him in anything. I'd heard of Paul McGann. I think I'm, I may have seen him in something previous, but Richard E. Grant was completely new to me. So he was with Nail, you know, because I had no other frame of reference, and uh, that was, and it was such a bravura performance i mean you just could not take your eyes off him so that was one of you know it's really his character is the is the heart of the film and richard e grant was just absolutely perfect you can't imagine anybody else um playing that character you know i understand when you're talking about how it's the end of an era the end of the 60s for someone who is a little older, who has, you know, kind of lived through those days, um, why this means so much to them. But what about younger generations who have found this movie now? You know, I just think there's uh, so many great moments in the film and it, and it's kind of has the, it does kind of pull the rug out from under your feet. You don't really know where the movie's going. It's kind of a bit plotless. There's not that much to it. Uh, it kind of goes from moment to moment, uh, but there were just some great laughs in it, just some real surprises. I can imagine that, uh, you know, once you see the scene, some of those scenes like, you know, with an unadulterated child's piss where, 
uh, he's pulled over by the by the cops, you know, uh, uh, while they're driving home, and he tries to <laughs> he tries to uh, tries to avoid the breathalyzer by uh, offering up uh, kind of secret, secreted children's urine, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, for his sobriety test. Uh, but he gets found out. It's such a shocking, funny moment. I just think that once you see that. Uh, you don't forget it, and also it's you know so it's kind of a, almost you can imagine it being like a frat movie in a way. It's a kind of movie you you would stick on with your friends and just really enjoy it as a uh, as a as a sort of Saturday night movie, night movie. It's definitely distinctly British, though. So I think I've seen it twice now, and I liked it better the second time because I think I had to kind of get the feel. And then now I'm able to kind of appreciate the scope of it a little more. Yeah, I know. I think it grows on you. And I think what, what it is is the characters are so well drawn. You know, they're just sort of such great characters that when you revisit the film, you're kind of revisiting with those characters again. You're kind of meeting them again. Uh, and the more you kind of meet them, the more you get to know them and sort of appreciate the humor that kind of comes through. I mean, Almost every line of dialogue is a classic, you know. I mean, if you read, I, I have the script. I lent it to somebody, never got it back, and doesn't surprise me because once you get that script, you want to keep it and keep reading it. Uh, but you know, every page is just full of just golden di- golden dialogue. It's really a remarkable piece of writing, I think, as, as a comic piece of writing. But it's one of those ones that is, it is a grower. You know, the first time you watch it, you go, "Yeah, it's a good film," but like Midnight Run, you know, didn't get a particularly good press when it first came out, but people just love it now, you know. And, and, and what it is is the relationship, I guess, between the two main characters. It just becomes irresistible. Yeah, I can, you know, the the constant conflict, but there's a warmth underneath it, I think, you know, the push and pull of the two. But when you first saw it, you know, you said you were in an empty theater. There's no way you could have known that this was going to become such an institution of, uh, of British film, I imagine. No, not, not at all. I mean, I thought it was a good film and I thought it was a, an unusual film as well. And kind of quite a brave film to be made in Britain. Not many films like that are sort of made in this country. So it was kind of an unusual film. Uh, but I think there's something about it as well that it really takes off in a kind of home video, uh, home entertainment sort of situation. Yeah. When you've got it on in your own home, it's almost like you're kind of inviting those characters into your house with you. And I think this it's one of those movies that just did really well on uh, on video back in in the sort of nineties, uh, and then again really well on DVD. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, when I heard you and Dave talking on his podcast, um, I think Dave had brought up how cult movies have a different route now because. Uh, we're streaming, we're streaming, we're streaming. This is one of those. And a theme we come back to a lot when we're covering, you know, uh, years like 1987, uh, movies that maybe find a small audience, but then just are uh, very rentable, constantly on TV. And, um, you know, everybody finds them uh, at their own pace there. How many times would you say you've seen this film? Oh, seven, seven, eight times. I've probably read the script four or five times uh, and just kind of said the lines endlessly. Um, just can't help yourself. I think it's one of those movies. I, I don't know if it, it, it kind of 
it would be a great midnight movie. I don't know if it right. really got that kind of showing, but you can just imagine people turning up as the characters and just kind of saying like saying the lines back at the screen, you know, as they're watching the movie. I think it's it's one of those kind of films, a kind of a like a Rocky Horror uh, kind of movie that everybody knows every line, you know. Uh, and I guess um, I guess Midnight Run is kind of like that, maybe. Not not uh, not to the same kind of extent, but I think a lot of cult movies are like that. I just can't, uh, I just can't help, rem- you know, remembering those lines of dialogue. Even the even the Blues Brothers, you know, uh, I know most of the lines of dialogue to that movie, and I'm sure a lot a lot of fans do. Uh, for some reason, it's just the dialogue uh, that kind of sticks in your mind, um, and you just can't help saying it back to the screen when you. Sh- when you're with people kind of watching these movies. So one thing I'd say that is different than some of the other examples there is that this is basically, you know, uh, a walkie talking, right? There's not much at all that happens in here. You, you got the two mains, you got uncle Monty and everything is either taking place in or around at first London and then the cottage. So, yeah. um, I mean, those are tough to pull off. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of like Richard Linkletter movies like that, the before series, but this one is obviously a, a bigger comedy. I love movies like that, yeah. uh, but they are tough to pull off. Very much. It's just like a film of grace notes, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, it's one grace note after the next and, but there is that kind of sense of adventures. It's the kind of going on this mismatch couple on their, on their misadventures. You know, we've gone on holiday by mistake. <laughs> right, uh, and the characters that they encounter along the way are, are just classics, like the poacher, you know, who leaves them a note saying, "Here, here, here, here." Right. You know, <laughs> it's such a great character. Michael Elphick is a is a well known um, well known character actor in on British television who plays the poacher. So, I guess there's a kind of added meaning to English audiences, British audiences, that they recognise some of the actors. Uh, but the guy who plays Danny, Ralph Brown, he's completely unrecognizable in that part, and that's what makes it so wonderful. Because when you see Ralph Brown in other parts, you wouldn't recognize him at all. He's, uh, he's, he's kind of like shaved head and looks completely different to Danny. You know, hasn't got the eyeliner on and all the rest of it. So, again, that's another extraordinary thing about the movie is just kind of the way that uh, you know once you get to know who's playing these roles you marvel at you know what it's such a such a great job that they do i mean danny is such a brilliant character and i guess of a record very recognizable in this country there are a lot of people there are a lot of dannys in this country you know those kind of drug dealers that you just love, <laughs> if I can say that. You know, the guy they come around, you know, and they roll a Camberwell carrot, <laughs> you know. Uh, you just kind of recognize the character. And I think that's the part, the brilliance of the writing is the characters are eminently recognizable. You know, even when they go into the, the tea room in, in the Cotswolds and there's this kind of major general major general sort of owner of the tea room comes out and they go we're going to buy this place and install a jukebox you know and then the major general is just exactly the kind of guy that you would encounter in a in in an english country village in a tea room so i think that there's a sort of recognition that goes on with an english audience about these sort of characters and i get you know you get i'm sure you get that in a lot of 
movies like Richard Linklater, you recognize the slacker characters in the Linklater movie. I keep bringing back slackers because of what you know, it's, there's kind of obvious parallels, you know, these people's aimless lives uh, and the sort of comic things that, that come out, uh, maybe more sort of dazed and confused than slackers. But the very, the, the, there's a sort of rec- recognition that goes on with the characters, the very well-drawn characters, excellently written, excellently acted. And I think when you get that sort of level of writing, the characters become uh, just very familiar. They're very familiar to, to audiences. And I think that's another reason why we've all met a withnail. We've all met uh, uh, um, the Paul McGann character, the sort of neurotic writer come actor. And, and those kind of people, they're still in London. You know, those people who sort of drift around in the fringes of the arts, you know, and you kind of meet them. And I've been in pubs that are run by Uncle Monty, guys, publicans, you know, landlords in pubs in London uh, who have been these kind of Uncle Monty figures. In fact, one of my favorite pubs, we rechristened it Uncle Monty's because it was run by a guy who was just like Uncle Monty. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, Bruce Robinson is a brilliant uh, observer of character, and I think that comes across really well in the film. Have you ever played the drinking game while watching it? Uh, probably. I don't remember. <laughs> so, I'm, uh, Yeah, I mean, no, explain the rules to me. <laughs> I think every time, uh, every time Whitnail has a drink, you have to drink. You have to have a drink. Drinking. So yeah. it's like... I, uh, quadruple whiskeys. We've got to work fast. Yeah, right. And uh, don't forget your, um, you know, your shot of lighter fluid in there at some. Yeah, that's right. Time. And yeah. you know, rub yourself with deep heat and get up against the radiator. <laughs> I mean, I, I was thinking about that the, the other day. Like, that cannot surely does that? Do you have deep heat in in the states? Uh, no, no. <laughs> yeah, you say again. You you're missing out so much on on that reference. DP is like a bomb that you put on if you've got a sports injury, and it kind of okay. heats the area of your skin. So the idea that you rub yourself, your whole body, this thing, <laughs> get up against the radiator to just try and get some kind of warmth in a perishing, sort of dilapidated old flat uh, is is funny. Yeah. When you get the reference. Right, right. I mean, like I said, I think, uh, you know, for me, the second time I enjoyed it even, you know, more than the first time. So that's encouraging to continue to watch and pick things up there uh, upon future watches. Do you have any other cult movies that you you've mentioned Midnight Run? Uh, Anything else perhaps in this vein or anything else distinctly British that we should check out? Well, you know, it's really, you kind of put me on the spot now because I'm trying to think back to 1987. Uh, and I can't really kind of get that close uh, in terms of British movies because there was this, as I say, um, Withnail was such a kind of unusual British movie when it kind of came out because there's just not really, not really that many comedies that were really kind of like raucous in that way you know, that come out of this country. So my, the next pick for me, I guess, would be Train Spotting, but that's a few years after, mm. you know, that's, uh, when was that, 92, 93? I thought but it was that, later, yeah. Yeah, it's quite a lot later, but I mean, that, I mean, Train Spotting 
is the kind of is a is a kind of movie that uh, uh, you can see kind of riding on a way in with on with Nail's coattails, the kind of more outrageous uh, again about sort of like down and outs or, or you know people who are kind of like on the fringes uh, and just trying to get by day to day and just you know doing not very wise things and taking uh, you know lots of medicine that they shouldn't be taking you know just as they're doing with nail so um, I'm sure if I kind of sat down and, and thought a little bit more I might be able to come up with something in between in, in British cinema British cinema tends to be a little, from that period, tends to be a little bit staid, you know, kind of like costume dramas uh, or kind of worthy movies produced by David Putnam, like The Killing Fields, for example. So that's another reason, that's another reason why uh, Withnail was such a breath of fresh air because it kind of came out amidst the kind of usual British kind of uh, stiff upper lip, upper crust kind of a, uh, Merchant Ivory films, uh, so yeah, n- nothing, nothing really springs to mind between With Nail and I and Train Spotting, and, and maybe that's one of the reasons why How to Get Ahead in Advertising didn't do particularly well, just because there's not that much of a tradition of, of that kind of comedy in this country. I'm gonna have to give that one a rewatch, also, because I didn't. I didn't really spark to, uh, you know, advertising the first time I watched it, you know, and I watched it after this. But I'm thinking uh, in America, something like Kicking and Screaming, Noah Baumbach's first movie, you could see like Mm. definitely imprints on this. But um, this has been fun. I'm glad we finally got a distinctly important, you know, as Americans, we can't just answer all these questions ourselves, Dave. We have Mm. to go all over the world, you know, and get (laughs) the right answers here. So. We should all play the drinking game together one time. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Just don't go. Just don't go into any Irish pubs in London, <laughs> and don't go into any toilets in any Irish pubs in London. Right. Because again, so true. It is so true. <laughs> and everybody's had an encounter with a big Irish guy <laughs> in the Mother Black Cat, you know, or uh, <laughs> one of those pubs. Did this movie make the book? Did it end up in the book? You're the 40 cult class. No, it didn't. You know, it, it really did. It didn't because, uh, and now I'm kind of wondering why, why I didn't, uh, why I didn't put it in there. So maybe if I do 40 more cult movies, maybe this is one that should go in. All right. Well, we'll be on the lookout for that. Uh, John Tolson, thank you so much for your time and letting us in on the British point of view on with Nell and I. It's been fun. Take care. All right, we're back on Awesome Movie Year. Thank you again, John Tolson. I feel a little more enlightened on why this has become such a cult classic over there in Great Britain. And Josh, I got to tell you, it's not just a cult classic anymore, but there's a new book out this year by Toby Benjamin called With Nail and I, From Cult to Classic. And this has spawned like a little cottage industry. I watched the 1999 documentary, With Nail and Us, which just talks about how much people love it. And we've talked about now how they're going to do a live show. So even though you're not a fan, Josh, it goes on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not disputing that this has a a huge cult following. It's just I'm not part of it. And 
And yeah, it's definitely become something beyond just a cult movie. And I feel like we end up with this a lot of the cult movies that we talk about that, especially when they're decades old, that the the following just builds and builds and, and eventually it, it reaches this kind of canonization point. I mean, this movie has been on tons of lists of the greatest British films, the greatest comedies, etc. I mean, it was named the 29th greatest British film of all time by the uh, British Film Institute, which of course is the same entity that produces our favorite list, the Sight and Sound poll, where I don't think this made that, but still, you know, that's that's about as 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 canonized as you get, really, from the BFI. Yeah, I think you could see it making lists like that and lists of like greatest characters. We mentioned three of the characters that we really responded to. Did you know that David Fincher tried to create a reunion with these guys in Alien 3 and he had McGann and Brown appear, but Richard E. Grant uh, turned it down? Um, I mean, I've seen Alien 3 multiple times and I, I did read that. I don't think it registered to me when I watched Alien 3, uh, even though I think I I watched it again not that long ago. So I was aware of Woodrow and I, but I uh, I did not think of that. But I think it's Charles Dance who replaced uh, Richard Richard E. Grant right, as, and as the character and, did and a he's little, very good in it. Did a little with Nalius. Yeah, I don't know about that exactly if I would have gotten that from there, but he is good in the movie, which I, I feel like is an underrated film. Josh, have you ever seen Bruce Robinson's follow-up to this, How to Get Ahead in Advertising? I have not, but I know that you have, and it sounds like a very weird movie. It was weird. Richard E. Grant's in it. I didn't like it, but again, now that uh, I've watched this and liked it more, maybe I need to give that another watch. Yeah, it, it sounded a little too off for me. And since I didn't like this uh, very much, I wasn't really eager to check it out. But yeah, I mean, he had a weird career where this, I mean, obviously now it has this huge following, but even at the time, it seemed like it had a good enough response that he went and made that film. And then he had his chance to make a big Hollywood movie with a thriller called Jennifer Eight that I have uh, also not seen and was so dissatisfied that he basically stopped directing and has a few screenplay credits, but but kind of left Hollywood. And uh, it was another almost 20 years before he directed another film. And speaking of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, he directed The Rum Diary, which was another Hunter S. Thompson adaptation starring Johnny Depp, which I've never seen, but does not have a very good reputation. I'd like to see it, um, but I haven't seen it either. Uh, he does have an Academy Award nomination for writing The Killing Fields. He's written children's books and, uh, you know, he's still a major figure in British pop culture. Did you know that um, the Uncle Monty character was based on Robinson's experience with uh, the director, Franco Zeffirelli, when he acted in Romeo and Juliet, 1968 film? And he said Zeffirelli uh, was just kind of coming on to him at all times. Yeah, I, I, I did read that as well. And uh, that's not surprising. I mean, that, that movie is actually like in the news now for other people who are talking about abusive experiences on the set of it. So seemingly not a good experience for many people. Making right. That film. He probably had a better time on Ken Russell's The Music Lovers or Francois Truffaut's The Story of Adele H, two directors who we've talked about here on Awesome of the Year. Yeah. And he's still, I mean, he started as an actor and has, you know, occasionally acted in, in later years and, and, and written books, as you said. But um, I, you know, at this point, it doesn't seem like he's necessarily going to make another movie. Yeah. I mean, he's probably happy writing the play right now, the yeah. stage adaptation. Richard E. Grant, though, Josh, will make 
about 17 more movies in the next year or so. That guy is busy, right? He is. Yeah. He's and he's great. Prolific. And yeah. he's great in everything. And um, we loved him in uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me a few years ago. And I think had he won the Oscar for that, that would have been more than fair. He does have a sp- independent spirit award for how to get ahead in advertising. Oh, huh. Yeah, I mean, and Can You Ever Forgive Me, that's a very Woodnell-like character, and I feel like he's played characters like that in many of his roles, I mean, and and many other kinds of characters, too. Uh, We talked about him when we did our episode on The Player, where he's certainly playing a very different kind of character. Um, He was in a movie called The Lesson, I think either from earlier this This year. year. Yeah, Yeah, and uh, and he's quite good in that, uh, which was sort of an underrated little film. I, I have a soft spot for L.A. Story, the Steve Martin film that he's in. And uh, I mean, you know, and a million other things. But uh, always always one of those character actors who's always welcome, even in a crappy movie, you know, he'll do something interesting. And you got, you know, it's so much harder than I think many people realize to play a role like with Nail or like the role he played in Can You Ever Forgive Me? Because these are large, kind of big, like, you know, focus characters. And they can become caricatures as opposed to real people, right? And he does such a good job of like making them real. Like he's he just does an awesome job. I have this quote from Steve Martin, Josh, from uh, the LA Story Time, uh, where uh, Richard E. Grant would fax him all these things, and Steve Martin said, "I kept I kept these faxes, which grew to a stack more than two inches thick, because they entertained me because I thought they were valuable aesthetic chunks." From a screeching mind, a stream of consciousness, faucets spewing sentences, sometimes a mile long, none of it rewritten and bearing just the right amount of acid and alkaline. Yeah, and that's a that's a high compliment from someone like Steve Martin. <laughs> right, I'd say so. <laughs> yeah, we could we could go on and on about um about Richard E. Grant. Uh, Saltburn coming out. He's going to be in uh, the franchise, which sounds like a really cool uh, TV series coming out. A team of a team trapped inside the dysfunctional hell of creating franchise superhero movies at the end of the day uh, face the question, is this Hollywood's new dawn or cinema's last stand? Well, it sounds a little bit like the bubble, so I hope it's better than that. We all hope it's better than that. I didn't see that movie, so I can't really say, Josh. Yeah, um, the right call. Yeah. He's written four books, and both he and Paul McGann have played Doctor Who. Yeah, um, Paul McGann officially played Doctor Who. I mean, that's really still the thing I think he's best known for um, in a TV movie in 1996 that was meant to be a big relaunch of Doctor Who and didn't work. And it, you know, kind of left Doctor Who in limbo for a number of years before they launched the the modern version of it. But because it's become so popular over the last 15 or whatever years, He's been able to return and make guest appearances and do like audio dramas and stuff like that. So he's a big part of the Doctor Who world now. And uh, Richard E. Grant, I think, only played Doctor Who in like a like a parody or something like that. Probably a lot of people know him from Luther or Holy City and his new movie, The Undertaker. An Undertaker makes the wrong choice at a moral crossroads as he is made to dispose of the victims of a gangster's power grab. Sure. Sounds good. So... We've talked about Ralph Brown, obviously, a little with Wayne's World 2, a huge actor in Britain on a ton of shows. Um, and he's also a writer. He won the Samuel Beckett Award for his play Sanctuary. Yeah, I just love that Wayne's World 2 thing because it's so random. <laughs> and I think it was Dana Carvey, actually, who had seen with Nell and I and was like, you know what? 
let's put Danny the drug dealer from Withnell and I in our Wayne's World movie and God bless him for it. Right. But you could see this as the type of movie that like they discovered, you know, maybe on a day off from SNL, just in, uh, you know, some type of uh, some type of retrospective at uh, the Lincoln Center or whatnot and not necessarily knowing what the movie was all about. And then they were like, yeah, we're in on this. Right. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. I love it. So, Josh, do you know how old Richard Griffiths was when he made this movie? 29. 39, Josh. He was the uncle at 39 years old. But uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I believe it. I feel like, you know, he's one of those actors who, you know, seems like he's in his 50s for like 25 years. You know? Yeah. Yeah. He has a Tony at Drama Desk and Olivier Awards for the History Boys. We already mentioned Harry Potter, Chariots of Fire, Gandhi, Hugo, a, a storied career. Uh, and he died uh, uh, some years ago, sadly. Yeah, it died in 2013. And people still, I think, mainly know him for the Harry Potter movies. But, you know, a huge stage career, especially. And the History Boys started as a play and then became a, a film, which I've not seen, but has quite a, a following as well. Yeah, he's he's a really interesting actor, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. And he is great in this, despite my reservations with how that character is portrayed. He does a really good job of it. The one other uh, legacy I wanted to mention is Vivian McCarroll, who is the real life person, was the inspiration for Widnell. And man, did that guy have a very sad life. Um, I mean, he had a handful of small roles in, in movies and TV shows in the 60s and 70s. I mean, already by the time this came out, it had been 15 years since he'd really been acting and he was an alcoholic and a drug addict and this really horrible thing i you know he was ill later in in his later years he had cancer but he was such an alcoholic that he couldn't he could no longer drink and he would inject alcohol directly into his stomach mm. and uh what an awful <laughs> awful thing to read about this um, um you know just saying that you know there's a novel of this uh i mean this is was a novel also and the end of the novel wasn't uh, with Nell walking off after doing the great monologue. In the novel, he dies by suicide by pouring a bottle of wine into a barrel of Monty's shotgun and then pulling the trigger as he drank from it. Yeah, I mean, that's really brutal. And I think probably was best not to have been included in the film. But uh, I mean, it sounds like maybe a better reflection of the actual Vivian McCarroll, who died in 1995. And again, was was actually was friends with Bruce Robinson. And of course, this is about their relationship. And another friend of his, Colin Bacon, wrote a book called Vivian and I that was published in 2010 about their relationship, you know, a nonfiction piece. Do so. you know, uh, did he have much success as an actor, Josh? No, that's what I'm saying. I mean, he in the 60s and 70s briefly had a few uh, roles. It was in like a TV miniseries and in small parts in a couple movies. But I think like Widnell in real life, he was so self-destructive that he never was able to get that career off the ground because he spent more time drinking himself to death than he did actually trying to work as an actor. Right. Uh, I should clarify, it's an unpublished novel that Robinson turned into the screenplay. Right. I mean, he wrote it as a novel first. And, and, and it, it, you can tell, I think, at parts of this film, it feels like something that was adapted from a book, especially that voiceover narration that's kind of intermittent, that that feels like something from a, a novel. But yeah, it's never, I don't believe has ever, even given the popularity of the movie, has ever been published. I wanted to mention Darrow O'Malley, who plays the angry pub visitor, uh, who's been in like 100 TV shows in The Long Good Friday. But the reason I wanted to mention him is because um, of another cult movie we covered, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. O'Malley did a uh, production of it in Dublin, which won 
numerous awards. And Richard O'Brien, who obviously wrote Rocky Horror, said that it is without a doubt the sexiest version of my show ever produced. Hey, that is, I mean, Rocky Horror, to be the sexiest version of it, that that takes a lot. So. I mean, you know, he's involved with, with Nail and Rocky Horror. These are big, you know, he's got a whole cult career going here. Yeah, good for him. So that is with Noel and I, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can uh, give us your drunken monologues online and on social media. That's what, fellas. Find us on social media. I'll just do it in a normal voice because it'll take 12 minutes if I keep doing <laughs> Danny. Uh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram, awesome movie pod on whatever that thing is called now. Um, X. Yeah, which uh, keeps keeps losing money. I read about every day. Josh. Yeah, it's going so. down the tubes, but we're still there. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're staying with it till the end, like with Nail did with uh, Marwood, I guess. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy and all those things, and of course, eat this comedy also thing. But really, find me on Letterbox. Go for Jason and Josh. By the time this comes out, I will be acting in another show. The majestic repertory christmas carol so i hope anyone who's in vegas comes to check out that show it's gonna be a lot of fun a lot of great actors in there all of us wishing that we were more successful than we are <laughs> support, support jason's acting career so he doesn't end up like with no <laughs> uh you can find me uh old stuff for me at joshbellhateseverything.com and uh, more current things at joshbellhateseverything on facebook at Signal Bleed on X, Twitter, whatever. Also on Blue Sky, which is better than X and Twitter and whatever. And I'm trying to jump ship over there. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And if you are on Letterboxd and you watch a movie that we're talking about and you write a review or even just log it, tag Awesome Movie Year. We're trying to connect with more people that way on Letterboxd. We can see all your reviews and you can see ours as well. And speaking of connecting with people, Dave, before we get to your plugs, I just wanted to remind everyone, John Tolson, great writer. Just go to Amazon and search him if you want to grab any of his books. He's got eight of them out there. I'm excited about this cult movie book. And uh, he did say if he writes a sequel with Nell, we'll be in. That's that's good. You can find him also on uh, X Twitter. He's there with us going down with the ship at System Shocks on X. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And yes, check out that episode with John Tolson on a bunch of films from the last five years that we think may end up being future cult classics. It was a great talk with him. Yeah, that's how I kind of zoned in on him as a guest for this episode. I listened to Dave's episode and I thought, this guy's perfect for this. So I recommend that episode, Dave. Right on. Thank you, Dave. So Jason, what do we have in our next episode? You know what time of year it is, Josh? I don't. I don't oh. ever know what time of year it is. <laughs> yeah. Last time you were very clear you knew what time of year it is. It's time for the holidays, Josh. You're going to eat a giant turkey leg, grab some stuffing, maybe eat a pumpkin pie, and spend the day with Dell and Neil. It's an all-time Thanksgiving classic, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, the John Hughes film. So tune in next time for our Thanksgiving special, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. So, Jason, what do we have in our next episode? A movie. We're we're literally <laughs> recording it in like 10 minutes. Oh, okay. I guess I know the answer. <laughs>